0: Why don't we start with a prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the Lord and we are your children. Um, thank you for uh, for this day, um, uh, for your mercies which were renewed each morning. Um, uh, speak to us now, open your word to us, um, come to us and uh, make things clear. pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> um let me close one of the doors at least, so good morning Lynn. Um, uh, as everybody probably knows, because of the the um, uh, tables out there, and if you were at nine, um, but hold these up. If you haven't gotten the set of your uh, of booklets, um, we have three booklets. Please, please get them. Um, we're asking that uh, just because we've printed 1,500 sets um, that uh, that I go to one per family, so we don't have to double up and, and go through a second printing. I'm just trying to save where we can. But, uh, but if you need two sets for some reason, you want to take them to your office or whatever else because you've got somebody you think really needs to see these, by all means, take them. But, but attractive booklets which kind of lay out where we've been as a church for the past year and, and prayerfully discerning the Lord's vision, will, and work for the Advent with the clarity of, um, of where we've been is informing where we're going. Not a surprise. Um, one of the ways that we've talked about it is it's not a change document, which some vision plans are. It's, uh, okay, we need to reset and start over and shake the snow globe and see where things land. That was not the case here. It was very much where things were going well. Um, let's stop, pray, um, discern. Haven't done this in 30 years. Let's see uh, in some ways, say a little bit. Uh, with, the, with so many opportunities, we really wanted to process, um, I did at least, let me speak personally, that would help us discern what good things we have to say no to. Because we have so many opportunities, um, so many places to spread ourselves so it wouldn't get too thin, um, we said what's, what's a way that we can then say you know where 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 are we um, and where where have we been and where are we headed um, and where are we going to say yes to certain things and say no to other good things and that was a big part of the process, and I think that's reflected in these booklets and as Andrew mentioned at nine, he'll mention again at the announcements in eleven um, do hope everybody, um, even hundreds of people around the Advent, will join together in prayer starting next Sunday. That'll be week one, day one. Is this uh, the last, the thickest of them called Devotions and Prayers is laid out. You'll see it when you have it. Um, going through each of our six tenets: worship, communication, uh, ministry development, discipleship, shepherding, and and, um, and outreach. Uh, we'll take one week for each of those tenets. And it's laid out week one. Um, Worship will be week one, week one Sunday, so that will be next Sunday, and then week one Monday, et cetera. And so, we'll put lots of things online to help remember, to help remind everybody, and that sort of thing. So, hopefully, you know, we'll be praying together as a parish for for uh, for six weeks, starting next Sunday. Um, any comments or questions about about that? We have some time here. We finished early about the, the process in general, about the booklets, or about the prayer, uh, uh, the parish-wide prayer, which we hope to start next that we will start next Sunday. Any, any, any thoughts, questions? Then, today, what we're going to do, um, uh, continuing a class uh, called Christ's Coming to You. Um, it's based on the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to be working through this for, I think, six weeks. I can't remember how many weeks I put myself on the, on the schedule. I think it's six weeks, so I'm not going to do a verse-to-verse, study of Mark um, in six weeks. Mark 16 chapters. So we're not even trying to do a, a chapter a week or anything close to that, but trying to, to, uh, to hit some themes. Um, Christ coming to you, uh, where there's the, the, the second person singular is an emphasis. Christ coming to you, not to me, not to others, in a really specific sense of Christ's intersection in each of our lives individually, in your life, Specifically, um, and it's the emphasis in the passive. We're in the receptive sense, the receptive life, which is the Christian life, where it's Christ coming to you. Whereas the emphasis not in that. The emphasis here is not Christ. You going to Christ. It's not Christ is there. You go to Him. It's the sense. It's a different sense. Christ coming to you. Um, and so trying to move around, and in some ways, as I mentioned last week, doing something which I used to do a lot of, and in and, and, and some ways intentionally have gotten away from, and now I'm going back to it for these six weeks, going to be heavy on the illustrations with with little video clips, or, or a, depending how today goes, I have have a passage from Les Miserables, the, the novel by Victor Hugo that we could look at, or a Flannery O'Connor story, or even something from Brennan Manning. We probably won't do that. Um, but trying to really ground it in some illustrations. Why? As others, many others have said, to try to get past our defenses. Try to get underneath the noise. Try to get past where we are sometimes, where illustrations uh, can can do effectively what sort of frontal teaching doesn't do. It's one thing to sort of list up here, a proposition about God is love. Let's talk about that. Let's make a a proof of that defense. You know, let me defend the proposition that God is love. Well, that's probably not gonna break through some of the noise if you already think that he's not because of something that happened to you a long time ago. My teaching you that God is love is not gonna change your heart. But a story sometimes will. And what kind of story? Well, stories that matter. Um, and what matters when well, now we're into the realm of relationships. Somewhere in the place here of Christ coming to you as a relationship, or even here, where, you know, in the weeks to come, we might have some stories about an autistic child who dies. Um, or last week, we looked at that video where a young couple was about to get married. I think they were in their late 20s, and they were made up every week uh, over the decades. So they saw each other, what they might look like when they're 50, and then when they're in their 70s, and even when they're in their 90s. And they couldn't explain the power of it. They knew it. They couldn't explain the power of it, but they knew it immediately. They saw each other. And in a moment, without outside the cognitive process of the brain, and I'm a big thinker. I love my brain. But it got beneath all that, and they just instantly realized what we call repentance. That's where they came to their senses, where they were sort of brought up short, where they had, they were given. Let me put that in the the passive tense again. They were given an apprehension of what truly mattered, of what true truth was, and what's actually actual and really real. Uh, They immediately saw, I love you, and I'm loved by you, and I see you, and I don't know why I'm crying, and but i do because i look at you and i recognize with immense gratitude the gift you are to me and the stories that we will have together by the time we're that old when i look at you what you might be when you're 90 i think of all the highs and all the lows and the life and the death that we have lived together and i tremble and i tremble and i tremble and it was that was one of the ways, trying to get underneath all that. Um, So that's what I'm going to try to do a little bit. Um, As Rod Rosenblatt, um, I like to say this because he's coming in a few weeks, uh, right before Thanksgiving, probably his last trip to the Advent, just because of his age. But somebody's been here many times before. He came here once, and we're going to reprise this on a Saturday morning, the Saturday before Thanksgiving for the men, um, uh, in a talk called When Good Fathers Die, It's Always Too Soon he got up and he said, and I've never forgotten it, he says, I am going to unapologetically try to woo you with stories about my dad. I was just arrested. I was 25 years old or something like that. And I was like, who is this man? He's like, my dad was one of the most unique. I love my father. And he just told a story after story after story of his father. And uh, and men were crying, you know, and he's going to come by. I don't know if he's going to do that again. I've asked him to, but we'll see what he does. But... Approaching that, trying to woo us with stories of grace, with stories of, um, of love, with stories of relationships. Towards what? Towards a clarification of, of uh, what's really real. I'm going to hit pause, and I'm going to say more about that. So any, any comments, any thoughts about last week, if you were here, anything else you want to say? Uh, Mark's going to be our launching point for all that. So, any questions? Um, let me shut the door. Um, <clears throat> that was all just filler. See who else is going to come in. Um, uh, so, um, Mark, one of the four Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—of course. Um, Mark being the shortest of the four, um, both in terms of of, uh, of chapters, but also a number of words. As I mentioned last week, uh, it's particularly attractive because there's a repeated. Um, emphasis on activity. Um, the favorite word of Mark by far is immediately or straight away or at once all these different ways that we translate in English the same word that's in Greek. It's as if he's breathless Mark is to tell his story. Um, a new book that's just out that our word uh, in fact is called on, on it's kind of a devotional guide to Mark's gospel. Um, as Mark's race to the cross, the subtitle is uh, a path strewn with sinners. I love that that, that subtitle. That uh, there's a breathlessness to it, where Mark can't seem to get there fast enough to talk about um, the Son of Man who would not come to uh, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That comes out of Mark, Mark 10:45. That that that's the uh, the whole raison d'être, the whole reason for for Christ coming into the world was to die. Um, Mark would certainly agree with that statement. Um, So it's very verb-oriented, it's got more verbs than any other other gospels, it can't get there fast enough. And Jesus appears, um, well in all the gospels actually, but we're just gonna look at Mark, he's, I wanna say, not what a lot of us think he is. so I'm thinking about different ways to approach that and trying to be respectful. But you know, and, and there's the, the so one. I'm gonna step on some toes here, so ask your forbearance in the front end. The coexist bumper stickers, for instance. Most of us have seen that several of us probably have. Have no problem with, co- I hope we coexist. You know, Good night, all the, what's going on in St. Louis, and London had another one a couple of days ago, another, and they're bombing on the tube. I mean, yes, coexist, but not co-belief. Um, not to reduce it and say that, look, we all are saying the same thing. If we could all just do what Jesus told us to do, Jews and Muslims and Christians and Sikhs and, you know, Hindus and Buddhists and, and, and nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and everybody else, if we could just live by the ethic of Jesus, we'd all be in a better place. Well, at some level, that's true. At some level, that's true. But I also want to say, very gently, but still very clearly, that's a, that's a facile understanding. Because if the, Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't reduce himself that way. Um, Jesus is radically inclusive, but also at the same time radically exclusive. The inclusivity, which is, what I think, what people are getting at when they're saying things like that. That, look, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners, and, uh, and the rabble, and, and the people, are outcasts, and the people that other people would want to forget and sort of push aside, 100%. And so he said things like, you know, "All ye who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest." Um, for I, you know, uh, Paul, you know, speaking, describing what Jesus did in his own life, says, "This is a trustworthy and true saying." What I'm about to say, this is true truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. You know, he was like, "I'm, I'm, I'm it. I know what I'm talking about." So massively. Inclusive, thieves, liars, cheats, prostitutes, prostituters, connivers, people who um, uh, extorted money. That was a tax collector. He said, you know, these are the people that I seem to prefer their company. But at the same time, at the same time, tremendously exclusive. I mean, much more so than almost any other religious figure. Saying things like uh, to people who said, look, we were prophesying in your name. We were healing in your name, and it didn't work. What's going on? And he turns to him and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you ministers of lawlessness. They're like me going to him. It's like, what's going on? How come nobody's changing? Depart from me. I never knew you, you minister of lawlessness. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot meet by disciple. So all I want to say is just sort of open it up, try to open up our, 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 our apprehension, head, heart, all parts in between, to say, okay, maybe, 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 the Jesus that I thought I knew, I, I can't pin him down. If, if I'm bringing the Jesus that I learned in second grade, remember felt boards? Some of us are that age. <laughs> Um, if I'm bringing the felt board Jesus to my, my adult problems, maybe there's more. Maybe he has a word for me yet. Um, not to say at all there's anything wrong with what we did in second grade. Thanks be to God for that. Um, but maybe there's something more. Um, and I'll say this quote again. Um, Andrew Greeley, a Roman Catholic priest, he died a few years ago, but, but several years ago said... He was talking about um, taking the Jesus, uh, taking Christ um, as he actually was in the Gospels and is as he's alive, uh, uh, trying to domesticate him, trying to declaw the line of Judah, so to speak, um, trying to to make him something which is is uh, is nice and manageable and not a threat. Um, uh, he called it to domesticate him, and so he said, once you domesticate Jesus. He isn't there anymore. The domestic Jesus may be an interesting fellow, a good friend, a loyal companion, a helpful business associate, a guarantor of the justice of your wars, but one thing he certainly is not, the Jesus of the New Testament. Once Jesus comforts your agenda, agenda, he's not Jesus anymore. So if we bring our agenda to Jesus, again, us going to Christ and say, here, bless this. This is what I want you to do for me. Remember James and John said that, you know, I want to sit at your right hand. He never takes that bait. That's a clear statement. He never takes that bait. Um, If he says, I want you to bless this, visioning plan, whatever else, I want you to take this and make this yours, he's never going to take that bait. He's always going to say, you belong to me. Um, I'll come to you. And if, if that's the desire of your old heart, Good as it may be, I'm going to remake it, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm, I want you. I don't want your agenda. I want you. So that's the intro. Comments? I'm trying to press a little bit now, a little bit more than last week. Trying to bring us in some, because um, this is evenly distributed. This isn't a red or a blue thing. It's not. It's not this kind of church versus this is this is which is an even distribution of human. That, that the problem of being a human that we are trying to make. Christ, especially, you know, into uh, somebody that I think I need or that I want him to be. Jim, I knew I'd get somebody out there. I would take one point of difference with Father Greeley in that if we do what he said we should not do, it's not Christ that is diminished, that we that are diminished. Fair enough. Yep. Christ yep. is the same yesterday. Oh, amen, amen, I'm in, amen. I'm in. That's good. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Um, repeat that just for the recording if somebody's listening. Uh, taking some exception, a quibble, which is a good one, not a quibble, um, with Father Greeley. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. comes out of Hebrews. Um, and so we're the ones who are diminished. Um, but uh, but you know, as if Jesus could be domesticated, another way to put it. Um, that's fair. We're about to move into the text. A couple of statements I want to restate that I'll probably keep in front of us for the whole series. Um, Two theses, if you will. One, we don't see things the way they are. We cannot see things the way they are. We don't see things the way they are actually. We see things the way that we are. Um, and so we've got these blinders, this visual filter, this this oral filter. Um, we, we, we see things, we perceive things through our um, Uh, our grid, what we might call our original sin. And so we can't not see things wrongly. We can't not not see things correctly, except when a word from the outside, a force from the outside comes. And so that's why I did that sort of ball-bearing thing last week. talked about my grandfather, and he was the king of trinkets, because when you become a man of prominence, evidently, Nobody knows what to get you except things that you can put on your desk. And in 1980, those ball things came out. And he must have had 13, 15 of those things. And he would give them out all the time to all the grandkids. Take it. I don't want it. Go ahead. Now I get it. I was like, wow, a treasure. (laughs) Um, uh, We need something to displace us, to move us aside. Um, We called that something repentance. Um, Repentance, just like Christ coming to us, Repentance isn't something that we do for God. I don't repent. I don't sort of say, okay, I'm sufficiently sorry for what I've done, or I'm sufficiently afraid of the punishment that's coming. Either of those are ways that we sometimes think of repentance. Um, oh, man, I better get right because this, this, is, this is bad. Um, or, uh, gosh, I feel really lousy. Maybe I'll go to church and I'll repent, and I'll say, God, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? that that's not really what repentance is. Repentance has something to do with this force that shifts us away from ourselves, and we're suddenly something like a revelation or an epiphany or an awareness or an apprehension or Erasmus. Um, uh, Luther's great foil in the 16th century called it coming to one's senses, and Luther and the Reformers thought, we can live with that. Repentance is not so much... um, a process of, of uh, a linear process where I realized, okay, I'm either sufficiently sorry or I'm sufficiently scared, because that's what it was before, but it was something wholly other where a light turned on, and suddenly there was an apprehension, an awareness that wasn't there but now is, and so it was the creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing, where suddenly there was this awareness as if, as if it just came, and that was the great word from the outside. Um, the word of the gospel they would say which draws us to repentance um, this displacement um, and it's going to be the well anyway so we don't see things the way they are actually which means since we don't see things well you have no idea you have no idea how much the Lord loves you I just want to spread that on as thick as I can every single week you have no idea how much the Lord loves you. Um, uh, Why can I say that? Because of what I said before. If that's true about our natural state of being a human being, human nature, that we can't see things correctly, we can't know things correctly, especially something like that, that means that we can't even understand how much the Lord loves us. And so that's where stories are going to come in, where we can begin to approach something like this where maybe just maybe perhaps 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 if uh if that's true on a horizontal way maybe that's something like the way that god loves me as well um um, and so displacement becomes a very important part um where every day we pray for uh that repentance which is done to us what is that again that displacement that awareness that for a moment, I saw clearly, as Paul would say in First Corinthians 13, the great love passage that, that we see now, but in a mirror dimly. But one day we shall see face to face, and I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And we get those glimpses of grace, and we know, we approach knowledge in the way that, that, that the Lord knows us. Um, with that kind of incredible, massive, never giving up, never ending. Um, uh, reorienting love. Um, so, if you have... Look for Bibles. I mean, get some more, obviously. Um, we are low on our set. I don't know what happened to them. I'll get some. Uh, if you have it on your phones or anything else, we're going to be in Mark um, 2. Uh, probably back up a little bit in Mark 1. Um, uh, uh, where we left off last week at Mark one twenty. Um, There was a... uh, Let me just turn. I can't do two things at once. We left off last week at 120, where Christ called some of the disciples. The rest of Mark 1, Jesus goes through and uh, and does several healings. Um, uh, Important to know, um, when Jesus came from Nazareth, um, uh, that's about several... well, anyway nazareth to jerusalem nazareth to jews would be like as i read somewhere this is because i'm from texas it's like it's like an old texan in the middle of new york city i mean you'd stick out like a sore thumb you got your hat on your boots your belt buckle and nobody mistakes you as a new yorker you now you're, you're still a citizen you're in the United states and you and, and say we're, we're, we got that going but but immediately you're known and with some derision, you could say, oh, he's, he's, a, he's from Texas. Or in Texas, he's like, well, he's a, he's a New Yorker. You know, you know, New York City, you didn't get a rope. You know, remember that paste picante sauce? Um, there's that sort of thing going uh, when it says, and, 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 and people in Jerusalem, Jews, at, the, at sort of the epicenter of, of Jewish life in the first century, uh, would have immediately taken note when it said that Jesus of Nazareth, they'd have thought, what? No, can't be Nazareth. For one thing, that's like you know a Texan in New York. But even more than that, and you immediately come here. This is going to be a theme today, um, where you ascend to some place of superiority, and you say Nazareth. And one of the disciples, Nathaniel, I think it was, even said Nazareth. Come on, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That this—it's like Op. All you know. Sorry if you're from Op. It's from like Sealy. That's where I grew up. Little town outside of Houston, two stoplight town, three thousand people. You know, Sealy. You know, can can a king come from Sealy? There's no way. There's no way. Anything good would come out of there. They're uneducated. You know, at best, you go to a junior college. Most of them is kind of a dead end job. You live, you die. Um, you kind of make it. Not saying anything bad about them. Uh-huh. Um, but can anything good come out of there? No way. No, not Nazareth. So there's always that that superiority. And then Jesus goes repeatedly after the healings into the desolate place. He says, um, he doesn't go to the epicenter. He doesn't go to the city. He doesn't go to the place where the people are. The whole world is coming to him. It says three times, twice here in Mark, in, in, a, in, a, in an exaggeration. And everybody was going out. The whole world was going out to him, and the whole world was coming to him. And, uh, and Jesus even said, "I'm coming back tomorrow." And then he goes away and he prays. And the disciples are like, where did you go? Everybody's coming after you. The whole world's coming after you. He's like, come on, let's go. We're going to the next town. And he just completely skips town. He just leaves in the middle of the night. Jesus is never domestic. He never, ever pin him down. And he can say, this, I know what he's going to do next. I know his next move. Um, he's always working in the desolate places and in the places uh, like Seeley, like Nazareth, like, um, like Little Town, Arkansas, like backwoods West Virginia, um, uh, like, like Iraq, which is kind of where he was, um, uh, like somewhere that you wouldn't have expected. Doesn't come from Versailles, doesn't come from DC, doesn't come from Paris. Um, uh, he comes from the underground. Um, so why does that matter? Because um, we don't see things the way they are. Um, but who does? And each time he did these healings, the demons were there, and they do—they don't share in our fallen nature. They have their own thing, but they know exactly who he is. Each time a G- a demon meets Jesus, you know what they say? "I know who he are, the Holy One of God." They know exactly who they're dealing with, um, and Jesus says, "What? Tell no one," and and just puts them out. You know, there's just no equivocation. There's no—he's always. In his most divine and um, uh, complete control of the demons, he has no um, uh, no problem pulling them out. But they know exactly who he is, and so that goes through to the last parts of Mark one, pulling us to the place where we realize that Jesus, yes, is in fact the friend of sinners. This radical inclusivity um, that he goes to the desolate places, to the places that other people would have forgotten people of power and prominence, would never go to the places where Jesus went. And you recognize that Jesus did not come to make bad people good, or Jesus did not come to make good people better. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And he starts to lay it across human nature and says every one of us are as if we're dead people walking. Um, So that brings us to, um, to Mark 2. So, any questions or thoughts? That's just kind of a summary of the rest of Mark 1. Um, well-known story. This is where Jesus heals a paralytic, where they rip a hole in the roof and, and four men lower him down, and then he calls Levi a tax collector. Why is that important? Because I'll say this, and then we'll just read it straight through. A tax collector um, was often Jewish, but they worked for the Roman government, and so they're sort of a hybrid because um, the two, it's like a sellout, um, and it's like extortion. If, if, if Rome said... Levi, he, I want yeah, you're responsible for these 300 people in this province, and uh, and our estimate is every one of them should give us six percent of income. And so I don't care how you do it, but you owe us uh, five thousand dollars at the end of the month. Um, uh, well, Levi would take that information and he would make fifteen, and so he'd pocket the ten and pay Rome the five. And everybody knew this was the practice. Nobody liked him, and he sets up shop. Where? Right there in the, in the best commercial district there is. That's on the seashore. So all the fishermen. The other Jews would look at Levi and recognize that guy is a sellout, um, a particular disdain for him. He's one of us, and he sold out to them. And that's where Jesus calls him. And he puts him together with James and John and Peter, the people he was extorting, and suddenly Levi's a part of that. And you just think about that dynamic. These were the disciples. This is what Jesus is calling. So anyway, let's read. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. I mean, that's going to be important. Uh, and they came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.' Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, "'Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone?' And immediately, there's that word, Jesus, perceiving uh, in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, "'Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier?' To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said this to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never, We never saw anything like this. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and he followed him. That's one of those things. And as he reclined at the table of his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So a couple of quick things. Um, a chance for some interaction, then we'll do a couple of illustrations before we wrap up. So Jesus, this, this paralytic, um, uh, looks at their faith, the faith of the, the four friends, and maybe the paralytic himself, you know, tearing out the, 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 the thatched roof and the clay falling through it makes a great scene. The movies that are made like this, everything from from the old ones to the modern scenes. You know, there's Jesus preaching. It's a hot, stifling room because of what it is, and 50, 60 people crowded into a little little house, and, and people are sweating, and, and Jesus is preaching the word, and he's going through judgment and love, and saying all that the Old Testament prophets, and saying I'm the fulfillment of all of them, and then suddenly. Dirt and straw and probably mice and other sorts of critters that live in the roof start falling through. And everybody moves back around and there's just this, this, this dirt falls through. I mean, it's a very dramatic scene. And then, of all things, rope starts lowering down this pallet. And a paralytic is thrown into the midst. Can you imagine the silence? What would this be like? I mean, this would be like here and somebody comes through and there's a person dropped right in front. And then Jesus' complete command, completely in his divine nature, as it were, uh, perceives. You know, because he reads the minds of the scribes, the, the 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 holy ones, the priests, the ones that that were in charge of the law and its interpretation. And they would scribe, they would write out the law. You know, repeatedly. So there'd be there'd be copies going out around all the world. You know, a very noble profession. They get a lot of them of a, a bad airplay because Jesus is particularly, saves his, his invictive for them, but, but a very noble profession. Um, uh, and he says, you know, what's he doing? You know, interrupting the pure word of God for a sinner. Why else would this man be a paralytic? Um, all the derision of judgmentalism and, and, and prejudice and prejudgments going on. And Jesus perceiving what they're thinking in their hearts. Remember what I said about here and here? And he says why do you question these things in your hearts and then he has a question and i think a lot of us i didn't see this for the longest time i thought he was setting up like a trick question but i was always like well, wait a minute but i would think the other he says which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk um and i would sit there and i would give the church answer i would want to say well obviously it's harder to say your sins are forgiven than to say, rise, take up your mat and walk, right? Because the sin condition is the, the deepest condition, because that's the condition of the eternal life, right? And so that's the harder thing to say, rather than say, you know, just this temporal, uh, very earthly paralysis, take up your mat and walk. That's so not important, because that's just for the next 30 years. You can, you know, what's 30 years compared to eternity? I think that's the reading, right? Well, there is that. But which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven. Or if you're sick, if you can't walk, if I'm standing in front of you and say, Drew, I know you've got a limp, but you're healed. Get up, walk away, show everybody that my word has power. Which is easier? <laughs> to say, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> because it's, it's, the inter- it's the hidden part. So Jesus is, is there again. Can't pin him down there's no pin here which is easy well it's easier to say your sins are forgiven but are you saying what i think you're saying because the old testament prophets would have said something like you know the lord forgives your sins or i speak for the lord who forgives your sins but that's not what you're saying you're saying your sins are forgiven is that what you're saying and Jesus, perceiving all this, says, I can see your gymnastics. I've got your attention. So let me do this. So that you can see that I have authority to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk out of this room. And the man does it. Which is easier? It's easier to say, I forgive your sins. Now he's going to get killed for it, but it's easier. And then he walks out. And what happens? Repentance. Coming to the senses. What's the only response? And they uh, all were amazed and glorified God, saying three times here in Mark 1 and 2. They're amazed, they're terrified, and another time they're amazed. And another time, this deep emotion, Jesus says, and I was moved with compassion. And this is beautiful Greek word. It's called and I say that only because that means spleen and guts a really specific word, isn't it? That's what it means. And It says, moved into this bowels, moved right down to the core of who he is with compassion. That's who Christ is, making these judgments, making this place. So, let me say this. Um, all of that, I want to get to this place where we can say, you know, what is Jesus doing? This, this massive, inclusive, massive, exclusive man who can't be pinned down. We're told... Right, going back to sort of the pre Andrew Greeley part, that uh, all Jesus wants us to do is get along. You know, he said, didn't he? You know, judge not lest you be judge. Um, Don't judge anybody. Um, Just go around saying, well, you know, que sera sera, whatever you say, it's it's your thing. You be you and I'll be me and we'll just get along fine. And that's how we sort of go through that. I want to come in and say, no, that's not quite it. And Mark is going to continue to hold this up. We're going to follow this line. Let's think about you know, for a moment the difference between making a judgment and, 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 and having the attitude of judgmental. Two completely different things. We can't know things the way they actually are. That's a judgment issue. It means I don't make proper judgments. I think something is X and it's actually Y. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just not making judgments. I can't make a clear judgment on what the problem is, on what the solution is, on who the solution is. And Jesus is saying very clearly, look, the well don't need a physician, but the sick. I did not come uh, for those who are well, but for the sick. And if Christ Jesus came for all, he's making a judgment. He's telling us to make a judgment about what's the problem, which we can't see on our own. We have a soul issue, a sin-sick problem, um, and that requires making a judgment. That's not judgmentalism. That's not what you know, our children learn in fourth grade and how to be nice to each other and you know, not run with scissors and cooperate, et cetera, and so forth. Of, uh, of adopting an attitude of superiority, which always involves an element of control, Gaming you, where I'm judging you, saying, well, have you seen his shoes? You know, he doesn't really know, you know. Uh, where there's that element of contempt, which is criticism on steroids, where there's that place that I'm better than you, and I'm going to look down at you. Now, clearly, that's not it, because Jesus' moved with compassion levels the playing field, where all of us are making judgments with each other about what's the issue and what's the problem. Um, so let me do this. One of my favorite characters in all of this. Let me think about which illustrations I want to use. Is a uh, Flannery O'Connor's character Ruby Turpin. Am I a O'Connor fan? I've used her in classes many times, and this one a while ago. This is a short story, Revelation, one of the last three that she wrote before she died. Um, this is a, a large woman in Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama. That's where she wrote Oliver's, and so about 1962 going into a hot waiting room, a doctor's waiting room, and, uh, and Ruby Turpin is, uh, remember the title of the book is Revelation, which is this, where she comes to her senses at the end, uh, but here at the beginning, she um, can't see things the way they are actually, but she sees things the way that she wants to be. So, armchair psychologist, uh, she's this large woman who keeps telling herself over and over and over again, I'm okay because I come from proper blood. That's what she keeps saying. I'm a proper woman. Um, I don't act like it, I don't look like it. My externals have conspired against me through here last week, you'll remember that part. Uh, and so I'm stuck with this ne'er, ne'er-do-well named Claude. He just got kicked by a mule, that's why we're here. Um, and uh, and he, he lost all of our money, but I'm a proper woman. And she keeps going through all that. And you can just hear Flannery O'Connor's you know, very unique way of putting things to describe this judgmental, she can't make a judgment because she's so blinded by her judgmentalism. Uh, uh, h- hear this, just the first three paragraphs of the short story. The doctor's waiting room, which was very small, was almost full when the Turpins entered and Mrs. Turpin, who was very large, made it look even smaller by her presence. She stood looming at the head of the magazine magazine table set square in the center of it, a living demonstration that the room was inadequate and ridiculous. Her little bright eyes took in all the patience as she sized up the seating situation. There was one vacant chair and a place place on the sofa occupied by a blonde child in a dirty blue romper who should have been told to move over and make room for the lady. He was five or six, but Miss Serpent saw at once that no one was going to tell him to move over. He was slumped down in his seat, his arms idle at his sides, and his eyes idle in his head. His nose ran unchecked. Mrs. Turpin put a firm hand on Claude's. Claude. Mrs. Turpin put a firm hand on Claude's shoulder and said in a voice that included anyone who wanted to listen, "Claude, you sit in that chair there," and gave him a push down to the vacant one. Claude was florid and bald and sturdy, somewhat shorter than Mrs. Turpin, but he sat down as if he was accustomed to doing what she told him to do. Mrs. Turpin remained standing. The only man in the room besides Claude was a lean, stringy old fellow with a rusty hand spread out on each knee, whose eyes were closed as if he were asleep or dead or pretending to be so, so as not to get up and offer her a seat. Her gaze settled agreeably on a well-dressed, gray-haired lady whose eyes met hers and whose expression said, if that child belonged to me, he would have some manners and move over. There's plenty of room there for you and for him too. Claude looked up with a sigh and made as if to rise. So I'll stop, it's worth getting, it's online. She goes through, Flannery O'Connor does, and describes it just an impeccable way. Um, <clears throat> Ruby Turpin and how she will sometimes, to put herself to sleep, go through the different categories of people and where she belongs. And she would sort out the white trash from the, from the, uh, the proper folks and all the points in between and coming to the place where, at the end of the book, um, after she gets hit in the head by uh, by a textbook from a Wellesley College student, um, who that was Flannery O'Connor recognizing herself, um, uh, ends up having a revelation um, uh, about a pig pen. Um, uh, so I'll leave it with that, where she gets displaced, where she recognizes that her, or at least maybe she doesn't, uh, But she's so blind, she can't see things the way things actually are. But here's the great thing. Flannery O'Connor never gives any doubt whatsoever that even somebody as unattractive and as vile and base and repulsive, that's the word I was groping for, repulsive as Ruby Turpin, has a place in the kingdom of God. Because she has no idea how much God loves her she can't know because she's so trapped, she's so dead in her trespasses and sins that she can't see things the way they are actually. And she gets it all backwards about who's at the front of the line and it's all the lunatic fringe climbing up into heaven, that's the end, leaping like frogs, she says. And she can't believe it because even the proper people are having their virtues burned away, but they're still there. So I put that out to you just to say you should go um, if you're interested and, uh, and have a read. It's, it's worth You've got to read it three or four times, like most of her stories, to kind of understand what she's doing, but it's, uh, it's worth the time. So let's find an exit. Um, Jesus, the friend of sinners, who did not come to make uh, good people uh, better, bad people good, but to, um, to make those who have a deadly disease, who in fact are already as good as dead, um, to give them life to make dead people live. Um, Christ comes, uh, and it's called the gospel. Um, comes in a place where he demonstrates his love in a way that displaces us, so that we apprehend that while I am yet sinning, someone as repulsive as Ruby Turpin, in the midst of all of her, I mean, she's mid-sentence when the book hits her square in the forehead, and then suddenly Flannery O'Connor says, and her vision shifted where now suddenly everything that was small becomes very large. I can't miss it. And she saw for a minute that she was the, uh, how does she put it, Um, an old warthog from hell. (laughs) Um, It's a great story. Uh, I commend it to you. Because while we were yet sinning, Christ demonstrates his love for us in that he died for us. In the middle of our worst, Christ says, I love you anyway. I love you. I love you. And you have no idea the depth of that love, the height of that love, the width of that love, and the breadth of that love. Um, So let me pray. Lord, take this um, feeble word and do with it um, uh, what you will um, and return it uh, 30, 60, or 100-fold for your work to be done in your way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me next week look at Malcolm Gladwell. That's who I was going to bring up. but um, Thanks. See you all.